<laughs> in the spirit of getting uh, the children involved, you can come over to the microphone. Don't be shy. In the spirit of getting the children involved, we had uh, Lord. We had. Is is he making faces at me? Oh. I thought you were going to grow this week. Okay. Hang on. I'll give you the cue. Okay? Anyways, in the spirit of getting the children involved in, in ministry early, um, Laura Kibler a few weeks ago read the, the passage of Scripture that I'm going to teach on today. And we are going to have uh, future pastor Andrew read, read uh, our Scripture today. And our scripture today, if you want to turn in your Bibles, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And you know, guys, it's a wonderful passage of scripture because it tells us so much about who Jesus is and, and what he did for us. And it, it tells us about his attributes as God, his weaknesses as a man, his sacrifice for us, his glory, his love for us, his obedience, we're going to look at the meaning of His name, and prayerfully we will all be drawn a little bit closer to Him today. Amen? Let's pray, and then, and then uh, Andrew will be on. Heavenly Father, we commit this time to You, Lord, and ask You to bless Your Word. Lord, minister to us. Use Your Word, Lord, for Your goodwill and for Your purpose. Jesus, we love You, and we love Your Word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Therefore, if therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection of mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than, the, than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearances as man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has also given highly... God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, those of the heaven and those of earth and those of under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much. Good job. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 2. And if you notice, it begins with, Therefore. And when we see the word therefore, 
we always need to keep Scripture in context. And we need to go back to see what therefore is there for. So we go back to verses 29 and through 30. 29 and 30, which reads, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So here Paul intimates that the Philippians are going through persecution that is the same persecution he's going through. What he's saying here is that the Philippian church, that some of them are being thrown into prison. The same persecution he's having. And that they saw him in, in uh, Philippi go to jail. And Paul here is talking about his conflict. He's talking about that conflict that we covered a few weeks ago where he is having this debate in his mind. Do I stay on the earth and continue ministry, being souls to Christ? Or do I, do I go to heaven? Not that he had a choice, but that's the conflict within him. And I think we all have that same conflict sometimes. Lord, <laughs> I'm tired of this world. I just want to go home. But Lord, whatever you have for me here, your will be done. And that's what Paul is saying. And so he's, he's, he's just telling them that we're sharing that same conflict. So let's continue with verses 1 and 2 here in chapter 2. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Now, the word consolation here is interesting. You know, when we read this verse, when Andrew read this verse, it was from the New King James Version. Some other versions of the Bible use the words comfort or encouragement here. But I like the word consolation. When we look at that word more in depth, the Greek word is paraklesis. And the translation of that, the definition of that, what it means is a calling near, a summons, especially for help. And so, as I like to do, I like to maybe take Paul's words and paraphrase them sometimes. So, if we paraphrase that, we would say, therefore, if we are calling him near and summoning him for help, if there, any is, if there is any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. In verse 1, Paul gives us four characteristics of Christ that we're going to look at. First, Jesus is the comfort of love. Second, He is the fellowship of the Spirit. Third, He is affection and mercy. And fourth, He is the bringer of help when we call Him near. When we view and ponder who Jesus is in our lives, which is something we should do, ponder. Who is Jesus in our lives? What is He working through me? What is He doing through me? And so we ponder that sometimes. 
And when we go through trials and tribulations, we can call Him near. He comforts us with His love. Seek it, brothers and sisters. When we fellowship with His Spirit, we are comforted. Seek it. When we fellowship with His Spirit, we receive His affection and mercy. Seek it. When we seek all these things and call on Him to come near to us, He will be the bringer of help. Whatever we go in through, Jesus will bring us our help. James 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. How do we draw near to God? Paul goes on in that verse. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Anybody in here get double-minded sometimes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So as we continue with verse 2, Paul links these four characteristics of Christ to His joy being fulfilled. Paul is saying, love each other with the love of Christ. Show His affection and mercy towards one another. Be like-minded in Christ's love and fellowship with His Spirit. It's interesting, Paul is saying these things and then he tells them to have these Christ-like attitudes in their lives so that it will fulfill his joy. Any pastor, any buddy that has been used by the Lord to, to plant a church somewhere is certainly going to be following that church. And seeing what the Lord is doing in that church. And in 2008, I had the blessed opportunity in northern Uganda to plant a church, Calvary Chapel, Kitgum. And so, I have uh, some Facebook friends there still. And so, I'm able to follow what's going on in the church in Calvary Chapel, Kitgum. And it gets better than that. One of the chaplains that I trained and mentored in South Sudan is now pastoring that church. And and that really fulfills my joy. Pastor Martin, Chaplain Martin, essentially he is a Sudanese chaplain who is a missionary to northern Uganda. And as I follow that church and I see what's going on and the Christ-like attitudes going on in that church, it fulfills my joy. I had the opportunity to pastor that church for about three months to, to, to get the roots going, to get it planted, and to, and to water it so it could grow. And, and, and again, as I follow it and, and I see what's going on and how God is using that church, it fulfills my joy. And that's what Paul is saying here. Verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or, or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Verses 3 and 4 
And I'll read it again. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I'm sure we've all heard that saying. If you ever find the the perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Amen? And that applies to me too. But that's what Paul is describing here in verses 3 and 4. This is the perfect church. Everybody loving each other with the love of Christ. Everybody esteeming others to be above themselves. Now that can be easy when you're brothers and sisters and loving each other. But what about that person that may be hurting you behind your back? Paul says we are still to esteem them better than ourselves. We commit those things to the Lord. So let's look at the meanings of these three words in their translation in Greek. Self-ambition. A desire to put oneself forward. A partisan and fractious spirit which does not disdain low arts. So let's translate in the original Chuck language. A divisive person who will do anything or hurt anyone to promote themselves. That's what Paul's talking about here. Conceit, vainglory, groundless self-esteem, and empty pride. God has a few things to say about pride in the Bible. Proverbs 29.23 A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So when we esteem others, when we esteem that person or persons that, that are, are doing things behind our back and talking about us, whatever it is, we esteem them above ourselves. And by doing so, here in Proverbs, we will retain our honor. Because if we turn around and do the same thing to them, there's no honor in that. None. Psalm 101, verse 5 says, Whoever secretly, what we are talking about, slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. Tough words. Tough words. Tough things to say. Tough things to do. Esteeming everybody in in the body to be above you. That's humility. Let's look at the, the, the word lowliness. Having a humble opinion of oneself, and I like this, and a deep sense of one's personal littleness. We're little compared to others. Our personal littleness, littleness, that's lowliness, which is so important in the body. Psalm 131, and I call this the attitude of a right-thinking Christian. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Neither do I concern myself with great matters. 
nor with things too profound for me. You know, before service, we were back there before we prayed, and sometimes we start talking politics and what's going on in our nation, and and uh, we were pretty much all like-minded in that. <laughs> and guys, we should be involved in the political process. We should we should do our duty. But God is the one that puts people in authority. All authority. God is the one that called Adam to law enforcement. God is the one that called him to the military. And the same goes for me. The Bible says that everyone in a position of authority has been put there by God to work His will. And, and we have to look at that in our nation, in Congress, the President. That's all God's will. And so, although we are involved, we shouldn't really worry or concern ourselves about what's going on in those places, those great matters. Whatever is going on, God's will, and I don't want to use this word, but God's will is using those in authority. I was going to say manipulation. God is using those in authority to do His will and His purpose. Sometimes that's hard to understand. I'm not allowed to say man and wife anymore. (laughs) But that's God's will for these things to happen for these things to happen in our country. So we shouldn't concern ourselves or worry about those things. But we commit all this to prayer. So Paul actually gives us a picture. Remember I said it was a picture of a perfect church? Paul actually gives us a picture of an antichrist attitude in verses 1 and 2, which is selfish ambition and conceit. A church cannot survive when it is based on self-ambition or conceit. I never wanted to be a pastor, ever. And I certainly didn't want to be a missionary. I'd hear missionaries speak and I'd say, Lord, God bless them. But that is not for me. And so he calls me to the mission field. Very clearly I was called to the mission field. And not only was I called to the mission field, I was called to one of the hardest and most dangerous places to be a missionary. I met a missionary at LAX one time after the missions conference, and we were chatting, and he was a missionary to somewhere in England. And I thought, Lord, I could do that a lot easier. (laughs) It's cool there, it rains there, it's green. There's no bullets flying or artillery going off. Why didn't you send me there? Instead of 115 degrees, 90% humidity, and bullets flying and bombs going off. But God bumps us and pushes us out of our comfort zone. 
there was no selfish ambition there. And also, I never wanted to be a pastor. And I know that Adam has no selfish ambition in him being a pastor. That's why he took so long to complete his uh, package. (laughs) But then Paul goes on. He gives us the attitude of the Christ attitude in point number three. Lowliness, as we already talked about. Points one and two, selfish ambition and conceit. That's a disease in the church. Lowliness is the cure. Amen? No selfish ambition. No conceit. And so, when we have an attitude of lowliness, that attitude makes what Paul says in verse 4 about looking out for the interests of others a natural result. When we are Christians from an attitude of lowliness we are going to naturally look out for the interests of others. Verses 5-11. through 11. This, These verses are pretty meaty. You could do a message on these verses probably for, I would say, a month. Verses 5-11. through 11. There was so much meat in, in these verses. So much about who Christ is. And so verse 5 is really an introduction to the rest of the verses. Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? The mind of lowliness. Mark 10, verse 45. Again, Lowliness. This is the, the, the definition of the lowliness in our Lord Jesus Christ. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So Paul uses this, this verse to say, this is the mind of Christ. Let it be your mind also. Paul says, do you want to have the mind of Christ? Here, who, here is who Christ is. Be like Him. So let's start chewing on some meat. Verse 6, Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God? Church, Jesus never relinquished His divinity. There's a difference in relinquishing your divinity or setting it aside when He came to the earth. And that's what Christ did. He set aside His divinity so that He could be us. So that He could be man. Which was God's will. And that is the way it had to be. And we're going to see that here in a few minutes. Jesus, as we know, was fully man while He was on the earth, but then He was fully God. What a mystery. How could He be both? Was He schizophrenic? Bipolar? I don't know. I'm just kidding. But He was both. Fully man and fully God. He was, He is, and He will always be God. Christ did not consider His equality 
or his divinity with God as a, a thing to be held on to, a thing to seize or retain or rob. We're going to look at what that means. That's kind of confusing. So we're going to look at that. Or, or carry his divinity off by force. Or claim it for himself or snatch it away. He set aside his divinity. And he set it aside of his own volition and his own desire. You know, God the Father did not force him to, to uh, set aside his divinity when he came to earth. And Jesus wasn't a disobedient, disobedient son who said, Dad, do I have to? Can, can I just be fully God while I'm there and not fully man? Not feel pain, not be tired, not be out of breath, not get frustrated. Can I hold on to that, Dad? That's not who Jesus was. He didn't say to the Father, okay, Dad, I'll go. But not without my divine nature. That's not who Jesus was. He was an obedient son. So let's look at that word robbery. You know, when I, I used to read that, I used to think, I don't understand that. I don't get it. Robbery? So we're going to look at that. The English Standard Version, I think, I think it translates verse 6 a little better. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or robbed. It's indicating that you know, Jesus didn't go behind his father's back and say, I'm going to take my divinity anyways. I'm going to sneak it out. Like some kids do. You know, they rob us. I've had kids rob me. <laughs> Teenagers, got to love them. But the word robbery is, is really interesting and fascinating. In the Greek, robbery is translated as harpogmos, which means a thing seized or to be seized, a thing to be seized upon or to be held fast or retained. And as we look at that word a little bit deeper, the root word of harpogmos is harpazo. Anybody familiar with that word? Harpazo? Raise your hand. No? I know some of you out there. Yes. Amen, brothers and sisters. Harpazo simply means caught up or to seize, carry off by force, to seize on, claim for one's self eagerly to snatch out or away. So this word harpazo or caught up, has anybody heard the word caught up before in the Bible? Everybody know what that means? The rapture. Amen. And so, what we're looking at here is robbery equaling the rapture. Now, how does that figure out? First Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. We'll be harpazoed. Sounds like an Italian meal or something. I'll have an, I'll have an uh, harpazo uh, for dinner today. 
But we will be caught up together with them, the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So, of course, as we said, Paul's talking about the rapture here. He's, he's indicating that Christ not robbing God or, or, or insisting on His divinity willingly set it aside according to the will of God the Father. And, and you know, again, I'm going to ask people to raise your hands, not out of embarrassment or anything, but who has heard this saying? Well, the, rap, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Amen? I've heard that before. So let's look at that. Is that true? It's not true. The word rapture is in the Bible. Harpazo, or caught up, is from the Latin word rapturo. So if you have a Latin Bible, which I don't, kind of a dead language, but <laughs> rapturo, when Paul says caught up, in a Latin Bible, it, it's rapturo, which is where we get our word rapture. So it is in the Bible. I was getting my hair cut once. And, and, and this, hey, I, I have a full head of hair. I really do. I'm just a, a bald wannabe. I, I got used to, I got used to this in Africa because it's so much cooler. And I got, I, I got so used to it that it's like, I'm just going to keep it. I think it's a good look for me. So most people, most men that are going bald, they're like, man, I wish I had hair. I'm the opposite. I, I wish I was naturally bald because this can be hard to maintain and, and very timely to uh, buzz it and shave it and, and, and all that stuff. So I'm just a bald wannabe. But I was getting my hair cut and there was an Episcopalian priest next to me. And he was going on and on and on. And, and all of a sudden he says, and you know, the word rapture is not in, even in the Bible. And after listening to him, I, I just had to say, Sir, let me tell you where rapture is in the Bible. And so I told him, and he just kind of looked at me and I said, Didn't you learn Latin in seminary? which Episcopalian, Catholic, um, those seminaries, they do learn Latin. And he was quiet the rest of the time um, while we were getting our hair cut. And he just kind of, I don't know, didn't understand it. And he didn't like me questioning his uh, Latin abilities. But you know, when Jesus come for, comes for His bride, we will be rap, rapturoed. I don't even think that's a word. But we will be taken, by, taken away by force, seized, snatched away, we'll be caught up, or if you will, we'll be taken away by robbery. Jesus will come and break, in, break and enter into His own house. We know right now that the earth belongs to Satan. Look around. Satan is 
directing some things on this earth. And it's horrible. But again, we have to remember that God is working His will and purpose in all this horribleness. God is not the author of evil. Adam and Eve and us, we're the author of evil on this, on this earth through free will and choice. But as we make those horrible decisions, as we make violent decisions, God will take those and work, work them for His purpose. And so Jesus is going to come to the earth. He's going to break and enter into Satan's realm and rob the earth of His bride. And we know from the book of Revelation that Jesus still holds the title deed to the earth. He's the landlord. And Satan is the renter. And Jesus will come and take by force us, His church. Verse 7, "...but made Himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men." What a description of Jesus. Taking the form of a bondservant. Coming as a man. Setting aside His divinity. Isaiah 53.2 describes the coming Messiah. For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. When Jesus came, not many desired Him. They didn't see their Messiah. Those that followed Him, yes, they saw their Messiah. They knew. This is the Anointed One. The Christ of God. Jesus came to us a penniless peasant. He came to a penniless peasant family. Fulfilling this prophecy, there was nothing special about Him. Nothing in Him that we should desire Him. And, using the word bondservant, Paul says, He came as a slave. So, He came as a slave to whom? He came as a willing slave in complete submission to God the Father, as well as a willing slave to us. Amen? He's our Master now. But when He came to this earth, He died in our place. And He died willingly. Why? Because we were slaves to sin. God's will determined that a slave must die to redeem the slaves. And when He came, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were slaves to sin. We were bondservants. Just as Jesus was a bondservant when He came. He came as a man and died as a man. And guys, this was essential for our salvation. He had to become us. So let me ask you this question. If Jesus came and He had been born into royalty, and instead of being an heir 
to an eternal throne of David. He was an heir to a temporary throne on earth. Would there be anything in that that we could identify with? I couldn't identify with that. Jesus wouldn't be esteeming us to be above Himself, which is what He did through His lowliness. We couldn't identify with Him, but we can identify with that penniless peasant, that humble man in his lowliness. That we can identify with. And that we can look at with awe and wonder at what He did. He was obedient to the Father's plan of salvation by dying on the cross. And not only that, the cross was the most tortuous death that you could suffer. And it was reserved for slaves. There's that word again, slaves. And the lowliest of criminals. And Jesus was fully displayed as He was crucified for the public so that they could have entertainment. There weren't any movies. There weren't anything like that. And so crucifixion was the entertainment. Hey, let's go out to the, you know, Golgotha. Let's go out to the crucifixion hill. Let's go have some entertainment. And part of that entertainment was to stand there and mock and, and say horrible things to those being crucified, making fun of their pain. This is what Jesus did for us. We deserved all of that. We deserved the cross and the mocking. We were the slaves and lowliest of criminals. And so He had to die a horrible death because of who we were and who we are. Jesus had to show us God's view of sin and its consequences. The consequences of sin were what Jesus went through. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Also, the penalty for, for sin is death. And Jesus fulfilled those things for us. So how do we know Jesus was fully man and fully God? Luke 22, 41-44 And He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is Your will, take this cup away from Me. Nevertheless, not My will, but Yours be done. Lowliness, obedience to the Father. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You know, guys, as God, Jesus knew he was going to the cross. He knew it. He knew it from eternity. And he knew that the cross was his Father's will. And as God, Jesus knew that when He became sin, which is what the Bible says, when He literally became sin on that cross, He knew that the Father was going to turn away from Him. And He was going to feel abandoned. Can God feel abandoned like that? No. Jesus was fully man when He said, Father, Father, why have You forsaken Me? But as a man, 
with a fully human body, Jesus' agony was so horrible, he sweated drops of blood. Remember, this is in the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a doctor. He knew about these things. And I think it's important to know that, you know, this is, this is one of those things that Luke records because of his background as a, as a physician. And so, could God sweat blood? He could make him sweat blood, himself sweat blood, if he had seized his divinity. But Jesus sweated blood. And so, a man can sweat blood. And this is documented in dermatology journals. They have reported cases of hematohydrosis, and it's a rare condition in which a human body being, being, a human being sweats blood. And this is also confirmed by Leonardo da Vinci, who documented that he saw a soldier sweating blood before going into battle. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him in giving and given him the name which is above every name. Therefore, remember therefore? Our lesson in therefore? Verse 9 begins with therefore. So we go back to verse 8 to remind ourselves of what it says. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. Even the death on the cross. When Christ humbled Himself and He was on the cross, He literally emptied Christ of Christ. And He died fully man. And that was essential for us. He had to die fully man. He died for the sins of all men. So, Christ didn't die just as a man. Christ died as every man when He became sin. And you know, guys, it, it, it goes on there in verse 9 about God highly exalting Him. God gave Him the name above all names. And so... Christ, as a man, was exalted to God. Why is that important? Because God is going to exalt us as a man. Or a person. For those that might have the gender uh, specific Bible version out there. There is one, you know. But Jesus had to die as a man, be exalted as a man, so that we could follow Him and be exalted as men. And what is the name given to Jesus? You know, I think scholars have pondered this. Ooh, is there another name? Is there a secret name? God gave Him a name. What could that be? It's not that complicated. God gave Him the name of Jesus. Amen? That's who He was. Who He is. Yeshua is Jesus' Hebrew name. Yeshua in English is Joshua. That's how it's spelled. And we get the name Jesus from the Greek transliteration of 
Yeshua, which is Jesus, I-E-S-O-U-S. Don't know if I pronounced it right. And so, when we look at his names, the names Joshua and Jesus are essentially the same. Yeshua, or Joshua, or Jesus, simply means, when we translate that, Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation. What other name could he have other than he is our salvation? God is our salvation. Yeshua. So let's end with the last verses here. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says every knee should bow. How many knees? All of them. And where are those knees? In heaven, the dead or raptured in Christ. On earth, believer or non-believer will bow. And those under the earth, yes, even Satan and the demons. Now, does that mean they're going to be saved? Oh, hallelujah, I'm not going to be the devil anymore. I'm going to go back and be the worship leader in heaven. Yes, I got saved. Nope, too late. Not going to be saved. There comes a time when it's too late. It is just too late. But yet, every knee is going to bow and confess Him as Lord. You know, we know from Scripture that Jesus spoke with the demons. They knew His name. They, they feared Him. Oh, Jesus, cast us into those pigs. Don't just send us out into oblivion. They knew His name. And yes, those same demons, in the end, will be brought low to their knees against their will. They will be compelled to go to their knees and confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so we go on. The same applies to every tongue. How many tongues? All of them. Here's the difference, guys. We will confess Jesus as Lord out of our wonderful love for Him. Willingly fall to our face and our knees and confess Jesus as Lord out of love and joy. Satan and the demons, they will confess Him as Lord out of fear, out of trembling, and out of gnashing of teeth. We have a choice to freely confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Satan and the demons, they they don't have a choice. They will be literally compelled to confess Him as Lord. And so, one simple question as we close that I want to ask you. I know most of you in here, but I want to ask you this question for you to ponder. You know, I was listening to J. Vernon McGee one time, 
And he gave an evangelistic message. And he had a man literally run up to the front. And he said, Jay Vernon, I, I came to this church today because I knew you were going to be guest speaking. And he said, your message pierced my heart. I've been an elder in my church for 30 years without being saved. And he came up and Jay Vernon was used by the Lord to save this man. And sometimes there are people who are still dead in their works, working towards salvation. Working. I served as an elder for 30 years, Lord. Depart from me, I never knew you. Is what Jesus will say. So the question is, from where will you confess Jesus as Lord? From heaven out of love? From earth having rejected Him? And then being compelled to confess Him out of fear and trembling with gnashing of teeth? It's going to be too late. From under the earth with Satan and his demons? Too late. Joshua said, choose this day whom you will follow. Make your choice from where you're going to confess Jesus as Lord. Pray about it and be assured. Jesus purchased us out of slavery to sin and He purchased us by His blood. Guys, there's, there's no do-overs. There's no second chances. People sometimes see that in the Bible that there's going to be a second chance. Not true. And it's the most crucial decision that you can make in your life. From where will I confess Jesus Christ is Lord? If anybody would like to pray about that, please, after service, come forward. Be saved, guys. Like I said, I know most of you in here. But as that elder for 30 years serving, he wasn't saved. Examine your hearts is what I'm asking. Examine who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Jesus, Lord, for purchasing us out of slavery Lord, we were bond servants to sin. We had no choice but to sin. But now, Lord, through being born again, having our spirit raised from the dead, we now have a choice. We can choose or not choose to sin. We thank You for that, Jesus. What a wonderful gift of Your grace. And we love You and we pray these things in Your name. Amen.